It's time to set aside the superficial. It's time to go deeper. It's time to engage in truth. Here's John Bornchin. Well, everybody, welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornchin. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley right here in Colorado Springs. And I am thrilled that you are tuning in because we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm just going to recap here for a moment just the first three verses of 1 Corinthians and get back into the subject that we've been covering the last few weeks. We did deviate last week as we were celebrating Thanksgiving, and I hope you were encouraged by that message as I was just trying to help put our eyes back on Jesus Christ, the author perfecter of our faith, uh, the fact that we're supposed to be giving thanks to Him for all that He has done. And so I hope you are blessed by that, and I certainly want you to be encouraged as we go through this journey together. But let's get right back in our study of 1 Corinthians, and the theme that Paul has had us on here in 1 Corinthians 7 especially has been healthy sexuality. And he already highlighted for us as we were finishing up chapter 6 into 7, we covered some of what was sexual immorality, and here he's been covering what is sexually honoring before God. In fact, he's given us this beautiful thing that, that is supposed to be a gift to a husband and a wife. And here in chapter 7, he highlights then how this should be done in a way that honors the marriage bed without defilement. So let's get into this. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 3, we read, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, what we have to understand here is that Paul honors and elevates women. Like Jesus, Paul always takes what we would consider to be a very high view of of women. In fact, he's going to thank some 18 different women throughout his text. So in this context, what Paul is doing is he's moving away from the usual Roman norm in which the husband dominated the wife. In fact, women were often objects and used for sexual gratification, and that's not what Paul is doing here at all. In fact, in Christian marriages, there's a mutuality of relationships. So he clearly elevates women and also declares to them to be sexual creatures that have desires and needs. So husband, this means that you must meet the needs of your wife. This includes her emotional, mental, and spiritual needs as well. So when you put your wife's needs first, by God's grace, your sexual needs will be met as well. So wives, this verse also applies to you. You're you're commanded by God to fulfill your husband's needs and yes, his sexual needs. So Paul also makes the point here of using the words render the affection, which is also the word fulfill, meaning to make full or to bring to completion, to develop the full potential of. So the word fulfill in a present day tense that we would use this as one of an active command. So that means that you should ensure that your mate, i.e. women to your husbands especially, that they're fully satisfied and vice versa. So it's okay to have fun. There's nothing dirty about this. It's entirely biblical. The greatest sex should be among married couples who are devoted to Christ. So couples, listen to this. You you note here that sex between a husband and a wife should be beautiful, honoring to one another, and fulfilling, ensuring the marriage bed is undefiled, according to Hebrews 13.4. It should never involve using pornography, other people, or anything immoral or illegal. And it should never involve methods that make the other person feel shamed, hurt, 
abused or even taken advantage of. So, uh, men, listen, a healthy sex life that honors God and your wife and leaves you fulfilled is ultimately a direct result, a byproduct of your walk before God, your integrity as a man after God's own heart. So let me bunny trail for here just for a second and give you seven takeaways, men, that will transform the aroma of your home and make you very attractive to your wife. Now, you may be thinking, hey, we're married. The deal's done. No, 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 no. This is an ongoing labor of love. This is agape kind of love that yields other versions of love within. I remember in the Greek, there's more than seven words that describe love. We use one in the English. It doesn't capture all the variables. And so if you want to have another type of love, you've got to get the agape love department right. And that is a selfless, sacrificing kind of love. So the seven duties of a man, I believe in no particular order, number one, would be to fight for what's right. Uh, Being a man doesn't mean you have to go around punching people like you're in some kind of UFC cage match, Uh, but it does mean you must have the courage to take a stand for what's right. You speak up for the powerless. You defend the weak. You fight for justice for the oppressed. And ultimately, you fight for your family. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, we read, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Uh, Number two, we're to take responsibility. See, you see, boys run from responsibility, but men, they run towards responsibility. So if you're a grown man living in your parents' basement and constantly bouncing around between different women and dead-end jobs, you're not a man. You're a boy with a beard, and it's time to grow up. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, we're told a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Number three, you need to provide for your family. You see, your wife and your children should know that you'll be willing to, to, you'll be willing to sacrifice everything. You'd be willing to go hungry to make sure that they're fed. It's not the government's job to feed your family. It's your job. And there's no shame in assistance when you need it, but you should be willing to work hard to provide for them. And we read this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Number four is you need to control your emotions. Emotions are a, a tool given to us by God, and, and they're healthy, and they're important, and they're also in healthy and important ways to express them. But they shouldn't rule you. you. You shouldn't be ruled by your emotions. So if you don't learn to master your anger and your emotions, then your anger and emotions will master you. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11, we read, A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. That doesn't mean you withhold communication. You just understand how to master the emotions in that moment. You can't trust your emotions. You must stand firm in what is truth. Uh, number five is you're to love your wife. In many ways, your life and legacy will be defined by how well you love your wife. Show her you'd be willing to lay down your life for her as Christ calls on us to do. Show your boys what it means to love and respect a wife because they're learning what marriage means by watching you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Number six Keep your commitments. You need to fulfill your commitments. This is the essence of manhood, I believe. You you pay your debts, you keep your word, and you always speak what is truth. And when you've blown it, admit it. Seek forgiveness. Don't make your decisions based on your feelings. Make your choices based on your commitments. In Psalm 15, verse 4, we read, But he honors those who fear the Lord. 
He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Number seven, trust the Lord. You see, God made you and his plan for your life is the only plan that counts. So don't be so prideful that you try to do it on your own. Life is meant to be lived in relationship with God. If you're walking with him, you'll always be headed in the right direction. You see, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 6, we read, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. You see, a relationship that stands the test of time, I I believe, according to Dr. Gary Chapman, I'm going to align with him on this. Here's some words that he's given to us on this about a relationship that stands the test of time. It requires words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, acts of service, and physical touch, not just sexually. But, but ways that honor the other spouse. And, and Dr. Les Parody, he'll tell you that you need to laugh together to rid yourselves of harmful behaviors, to boost your partner's self-esteem in their spirits, and to chart your course together, your life together, the, the journey together. You don't just go off and make decisions on your own and then maybe inform your spouse. That, that's poor communication. You do this together. You, you've become one and you think is one. He'll also tell you to be a leader, an optimist, a validator, and an evaluator, the L-O-V-E acrostic. So all these recommendations are true. They're powerful and effective. And over the past few years, my wife and I have read and implemented many of the concepts of love and respect, the love dare, the five love languages, and and the love list and L-O-V-E. So we seem to be bursting at the seams at times with tactics. But the reality is you have to be transformed in the mind, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. There has to be a mindset that no matter what, your purpose is to bring out the best in the other person as you serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that, that is why he, he modeled foot washing. He, he didn't just talk about foot washing. He did it. He demonstrated it. He, he put his, his words that weren't just words, but they were backed up by action. And we need to be likewise. So th- that means it's not all about us. It's about how we serve the other. So husbands desire respect, wives desire love. Ultimately, it's one and the same, but yet this is how we translate it. We, men translate respect as love, and, and, and wives desire the, the inappropriate type of affection that, that bolsters them and communication and, and feel respected as well. But we will withhold these from the other when we don't feel the other is reciprocating, and that's all unbiblical. God never said that we only give what we're commanded to when the other person does their part. This will be a test of obedience and faith, I guarantee you. So when that person is pressing all the right buttons, when they seem to be antagonizing you, you have to do what's biblical. You have to do what's right and not withhold from them the affection due them or the respect due to them. So someone has to step forward out of obedience, and and you'll never get out of the crazy cycle if you don't. So we often go into a relationship with the intent that the other will somehow fulfill something, a need, a longing, a sexual desire, fill in the blank. And then when the relationship goes through some great tribulation, and it will, believe me, if that's your perspective, then the excuse is going to come, I'm just not happy. Well, if we all went into relationships with the intent of, of giving rather than taking and expecting a return for our sacrifice, then there'd be no room for offense. Right? I mean, if, we, if our intent here is, is authentic, that we are truly going to model Jesus Christ to the other. We're going to wash their feet. We're going to bless and serve them faithfully to Almighty God and looking for almost nothing in return. I mean, that's a selfless act of service. That's true agape love on display. 
then watch what happens in your relationship. Watch how the other person responds. Is it so difficult, really, to give ourselves unconditionally? Yes. Yeah, it really is. Why? Because we're, we're naturally selfish. We want what we want. We will give, but what we really want is a positive response that yields a desired outcome. And, and so if you're in a relationship right now, then you have to first realize that you will not have a successful union unless you're willing to point the finger at yourself and thoroughly examine what you can't see in the mirror. So once you admit that the challenges in your relationship may be a result of your own skewed behavior or your own mindset and not entirely the other person's fault, then and only then will the rest of anything I have to say will be of any value to you at all. And hopefully then it will develop a fun-lasting relationship. It will only improve if you're willing to improve. So as we examine the directives here of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, one question that naturally flows to the surface is, despite everything I have just said, what we often then ask is, well, then how often should we have sex? Now, for some of you guys out there who are listening, maybe I've sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher until now, and I just got your attention. Well, good. Now, Now focus. There seems to be a lot of pressure put on people regarding the issue of how often. And given all the variables, it's unwise for me in any way to give a prescription for this area to every couple. The trends vary with age, health, number of children, age of the children, etc. But if we look at some baseline statistics, then the average couple, as we're told, have sex one to two times per week. So should Christians then, who are filled with the Holy Spirit and called to live a supernatural life, have sex more often or less? Let me give you my personal bias on this. A healthy sex life is a byproduct of a spiritually healthy home. So if you have good communication, a loving and honoring relationship, free from performance pressures and unrealistic expectations, then sex can be a wonderful thing and all you imagined it could be. To which I say then, the more the better. But remember, for men, this can translate as quantity while women can often translate a healthy sex life is is quality, right? And so we have to be on the same page there. So there needs to be a good balance. And that's why Paul instructs couples not to deprive one another except with consent. And then he lists reasons. And this implies healthy communication is ultimately a factor in all of this. Now, please understand this verse of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, that it teaches that sex is a delight, but it is also a duty within a marriage union. A duty is a moral or legal responsibility or obligation that arises from one's position. And as you recall, a few weeks ago, I helped you understand that the Greek word for that consummation is like a glue. It's a bonding agent that brings two independent individuals together, bonding them as one flesh. That's why it's such a beautiful gift given to a husband and wife, not for anyone outside that marriage. This is a gluing agent for these two individuals given to them by God, understanding that they will be tempted outside of that marriage union. So this glue must be regular and respectful, right? So it's a duty of each married person then to meet the sexual needs of his or her partner, married partner. So this means sex should never be used as a bribe or some kind of reward for good behavior or something withheld even as a manipulation tactic or punishment. It's a responsibility and privileges that act as a bonding agent. So the spouse who withholds sex for selfish reasons sins against God 
and his or her partner. So, so why should married partners then always fulfill the duty to their spouse? Here, here's what Paul gives us an answer on that. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So God sovereignly takes something away at the point of marriage and gives it as a heavenly wedding present to your spouse. The Lord doesn't ask if he can take it. The Lord doesn't ask if you want it. Sovereignly, the Lord takes the authority you have had over your own body as a single individual, removes it from you for as long as you live, and the term authority in this passage literally means to have rights over or exclusive claim to. So it's an uncomplicated thing. God gave my body to my wife, and I have nothing to say about it. So you're welcome, sweetie. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. She's laughing right now. She's listening to this on the radio. So we have a laugh. Uh, uh, we got to laugh about this a little bit. But last week was so intense. So listen, we got to have a little fun on this. But Paul was careful. He was careful to give both husband and wife equal rights in these verses. He did not regard the man as having sexual rights or needs that the woman does not have or, or vice versa. So the principle applies in the sexual realm here. However, I also think there's a great application in other areas of our life. I mean, if you think about it, all the other examples that come to mind, like uh, tattoos or piercings, facial hair, length of hair, attire, birth control, body appearance, are all decisions that your husband or wife should have the power to veto since your body is really a gift to your spouse, right? So since we belong to the other, then we ought to listen to their perspectives. It matters. And, and again, if the home is improper, balanced spiritually, the application of this scripture will not be abused. So uh, Paul frequently uses the term body, soma, is a, in its broadest, fullest, richest sense. It, it's everything we're, we are, th- that we're made up physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So the greatest sexual fulfillment comes gradually over the long haul in a marriage as, as a couple learns to talk about everything, anything, then this becomes heart-to-heart communication and not just talking at each other, but listening actively and sensitively, right? We need to be sensitive to the other, caring deeply about the other through our communication. So, i.e., great communication can lead to great sex. So here we go, verse 5, let's move on. We're told, do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the word do not deprive literally means do not rob one another or do not fraud one another. So the the word means to cheat somebody out of what is properly theirs. That's the Greek verb for deprive is used there. And and he did for cheating using the similar uh, tone and verbiage of 1 Corinthians 6, 7, 8. So this is a strong language to use here. And it demonstrates that Paul is serious when he views the intimate relationship as an obligation, a responsibility. Paul writes that we may deprive each other of sex under only four conditions. Number one, that 
when you both agree. If you can't decide by yourself, you shouldn't be depriving your spouse of of, of sex. I mean, if you can't decide as a, as a couple on this, it's not up to you and you alone to determine what the other is receiving or not receiving. So both of you should agree on this. So let's say that last night your spouse rolled over in bed and made a sexual advance. Now, because you had a long and exhausting day, you say, I'm, I'm really tired tonight. Would it be all right if you and I just waited till tomorrow? When the initiating partner hears this and is willing but tired of of this attitude and so forth and, you know, just gets a little frustrated, but ultimately through healthy communication accepts this and understanding of the other partner's needs, there's healthy communication that is happening here, and therefore it can be an honorable thing to both parties, even though one may be in the mood and the other's not. Uh, So you need healthy communication in this. And, And number two, sex can be deprived when both agree to delay for a time. So whenever a couple mutually agrees to deprive one another of this intimacy, the two must agree when they will come together again. So if there's a not tonight that's presented, it should be in a biblical pattern here. So there should be a specified period of time, not leaving it nebulous that can create resentment, confusion, or even division. You see, listen, men like to hunt, so it's okay to set a date, which will make them eager for what that, when that day approaches. But if you live by a calendar, you can then somehow squelch the joy of spontaneity as well as make your spouse feel like you've lost that romance in the marriage. And we don't want that. So this is something that must be executed in proper balance. You, you'll know, you understand and how you communicate in this and through these type of issues. So for you younger married couples, you need to understand why this can be complicated. As you get older and work schedules and age and children and health and stress and other activities and responsibilities that start filling your day, a reduction in sexual activity can create some emotional feedback. So this this compo- this is compounded then with immaturity. It can also lead to feelings that don't align with reality and need proper perspective. So thirdly, you know, sex can be set aside to devote yourselves to prayer. And that's what Paul's really highlighting here, that, that married couples are engaged to remain celibate only for fasting and prayer and during a woman's monthly menstrual cycle, according to Leviticus 18.19. So there was also the case of purity during war, when the situation then called for men of God to be focused on the mission that was before them and, and that they were to remain pure. However, there wasn't a designated period of time for this. In fact, we see that David's men had, had been without relations with their wives for three whole days uh, per King David in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 4 to 5. Uh, but Uriah, in that particular case, was this uh, stellar example of dedication and discipline, even refusing to go back home lest he lose focus on the mission that was before him in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So, so a, a biblical purpose for depression depriving yourselves of sex is to devote yourselves to sharing a spiritual focus in your marriage. And that that uh, is something that requires great communication to make sure you're both on the same page in that. This is how serious these individuals at that time took fasting and consecration before Almighty God. I, I would pray and hope that we we're doing the same thing. So sometimes fasting could last for many days. So abstinence and preparation for religious activities is is something they would do often, a number of scriptures to support that. So a family that is built on the precepts of God, ones that choose to follow after him and him alone, as we read in Joshua 24, 15, they'll make accommodations for time with God specifically, and that's okay, and that's a good thing. And finally, sex can be deprived 
until the two of you agree to come together again. So there should be sexual intimacy that is normal and healthy and beautiful, and it should never just be the exception. Uh, but, But there's realities that we have to keep in mind here. So if we deprive each other, we, we have to understand that we open ourselves up to attack. In sexual matters, you, you have to come together after an agreed time of abstinence, or you open yourselves up to the attacks of Satan. There's, there's chinks in the armor that can be exploited. So we have to understand that that's a reality of this situation. You have two very physical individuals who are going to be surrounded by temptation at every corner, even at checkout lines and grocery stores. So you have to make sure the glue spiritually is strong and the glue physically is strong. You see, Satan will come against you with temptations to commit sexual immorality, not just physically, but also in your mind. And that was the whole Sermon on the Mount. It was to help us understand where sin begins. So the longer sex is postponed in the marital partnership there, the greater the risk of temptation. So we have to take this seriously because Satan is no pushover. And he's real and he's powerful, and he seems to enjoy destroying marriages because it's the image of Christ and his church, the great mystery of Ephesians chapter 5. And secondly, you lack self-control when you deprive each other sexually. So depriving your spouse of sexual relations results in more than immediate short-lived frustration. You see, continued postponement of these type of healthy, intimate relationships within a marriage places very real and unnecessary pressure on the relationship. Sexual response and impulses such as touches and physical contact is is something that impacts you emotionally, spiritually, in all layers of your life. And this is where Satan can be very clever, very crafty, and creating temptations of, well, that person really is understanding me. They're really listening to me. So, listen, this is all important that we understand that sexual intimacy in a marriage is a gift, and it should be used wisely. If we Christians ignore this topic and ignore sex as a as a gift in a marriage, we surrender to the culture, and then ultimately they're perverting it, distorting it, and we give the impression that sex itself is bad because it's so abused. And what we are called to do is set the standard. We as Christians should have the best of sexual enjoyment between our, a husband and a wife, right? We're the ones setting the standard for how it should be done and done correctly in a way that honors God, honors our spouse, honors our home, doesn't defile the bed, and, and really edifies and builds up our spouses, right? Uh, this is not an easy thing, but if we do it with the right frame of mind, if we honor God in these things, if we seek to bless our spouse, and we do so with an agape kind of love, i.e. we're going to wash their feet, we're going to serve them, we're going to listen to them, we're going to communicate in a healthy, honoring, respectful way. Watch how the aroma of your home changes in all of these aspects. It's a beautiful thing. And so I want to encourage you in this. We're just getting started. We just got through the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A lot more to cover. I hope you've been encouraged in this. Maybe you're struggling in some of these areas. You need further encouragement. Please, reach out to us at calvaryfountain.com. Again, this is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley. We're an expository church going through the Bible verse by verse, and and we have services at 8 a.m. and at 10 a.m. on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. So learn more. Again, calvaryfountain.com. God bless you, my friends.